Hear these words from Matthew's Gospel. I'll be reading, reading portions of the 11th chapter. The words of Jesus where he says, But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father, the Son, except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, anyone, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Going. Good morning. It says unison prayer here, but uh, I wasn't sure at what point that came in or if it came in at all. So uh, we will continue to pray silently in our hearts that uh, this guy doesn't go on forever. That would be a good prayer. Uh, I don't preach that much, so I have to make up for it, uh, lost time when I do get in the pulpit. So don't expect to get out, here, out of here uh, in the next hour or two. <clears throat> well, I am delighted to be here. Uh, my wife, Tracy, in pink right there. Uh, we live at Maris Grove. We've been there a little over two years. Uh, so we're still newbies there. <clears throat> but it is nice to uh, have a chance to, uh, to preach every now and again. When, when somebody is, needs to be out of the pulpit, I'm glad to be available to them. And I'm thankful that I had this opportunity so just for kicks this morning, um, let's talk about ancient history. Now, not dinosaurs or coliseums or pyramids, not quite that ancient. But I graduated from high school in June of 1969, and I started college the following September. So that was 54 years ago. Some of us were a lot younger then. I don't know. There might have even been some that didn't exist back then. I'm embarrassed to say the number one song on the uh, 1969 billboard, billboard charts was Sugar Sugar by the Archies. And that is just wrong. Um, if you don't remember the song, see me after the service, I'll sing it for you. But in 1969, a little, little redemption came. The Tony for the best musical went to 1776. It was a great show. 
my wife, Tracy, and I saw the movie when it came out three years later. Um, and it was a great movie, too. Some of the same characters that had played it on Broadway played it in the movie. So that was uh, just a year before we got married that we saw it. To put that all in perspective, uh, two weeks ago we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Um, so time moves on, whether or not you're ready for it to do so. So the nation was four years away from its 200th anniversary, its 200th birthday, when the movie 1776 hit the theaters. Today, we're looking ahead to its 250th birthday, coming up in 2026. Now, 1776, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the founding fathers and even a few of the mothers. Uh, and the contentious process that led to the signing of the Declaration of Independence in foul-feated, fuming, foggy, filthy Philadelphia. Um, I, you know, I'm just quoting from the, yeah, from the musical. So it dared to strip away the, the veneer of a junior high U.S. history class and, and the image that the founders were all of one mind, that their motives were all noble, and that they were persons, men of moral reproach, uh, above moral reproach, rather than suggesting that it was the gifts and the graces of this bunch of bubbling, bumbling rebels that birthed the United States of America. It leaves the audience with the impression that this country coming into existence was nothing short of a miracle. Now, God, it would seem, relishes opportunities to create order out of confusion, to make something out of nothing. The whole, in the beginning when God created the heavens and earth, the earth was a formless void scenario. The grand experiment called democracy would appear to fall right into that category. We can... We can gripe and grouse about the, the moral failings of our elected officials today and wish that they had the character of our founders, but in reality they do. Uh, the difference is, thanks to the media, today's politicians get caught, or at least they almost get caught. Same could be said of leaders in the church across the centuries. Before they became church leaders, they were human beings. That didn't change once they became leaders. They were still human. They still are human. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example, not an example of perfection, but the perfect example of the humanity that lingers in all of us even after we have given our lives to Christ. Our humanity, with all of its flaws, doesn't vanish with with baptism, it doesn't vanish with confirmation, and it doesn't even vanish with a dramatic conversion experience. It doesn't even start to fade away as we get older. Nuts. We're stuck with this human experience. Now, there is something about Romans 7, very well read, thank you very much, that sounds a lot like a 12-step group meeting. Hi, my name is Paul, and I'm a law-aholic. 
and everybody responds? Thank you. There are a plethora of recovery groups that are patterned after Alcoholics Anonymous. There are groups where people addicted to an assortment of drugs, uh, as well as food and sex and smoking and gambling and video gaming and work and emotional illness. Yes, there are even people addicted to being addicted. Paul's addiction was to the law. He just couldn't get enough of it. He had been raised on it, he was educated by it, he practiced it, and he had gotten quite good at it. The law made Paul's life make sense. For Paul, it was the law. We all need something, that organizing principle that holds our lives together, that makes our lives make sense. And again, for Paul, it was the law. He was passionate about life being cut and dried. He had been fed a steady diet of, of black and white, of absolutes, and that's how life was supposed to be. You want to know what to do, which to choose, how to respond, what decision to make. Somewhere, if you look hard enough, there's a law to guide you in making that decision. The law covers it all. It tells us what to do. And our laws easily outnumber even the apps on our smartphones. Then there's the post-conversion Paul, a man completely given to the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the one who is worthy of our devotion and our complete commitment, but also a man still struggling with this obsession, this addiction to the law. My paraphrase of what Paul writes to the Roman church goes like this. I haven't a clue why I do what I do. Sounds like Dr. Seuss, right? I want to do what is right, to live out of the, the heart that Christ himself has placed within me. But I find myself falling back into a dependence on the law. When I'm doing what I don't want to be doing, I think that the law is all we need. Just get it in writing. Just follow the rules. Don't expect people to operate out of any kind of a commitment, any kind of, of a passion for justice and mercy. Just give them the law because they aren't capable of operating any other way. That's not glorifying God. That's sin. Alienation from the God who created us to be just and compassionate and merciful. But sin lives inside of me. It's part of my flesh. It's part of my being human. I can desire what's right. I can long for what is right. I can be downright passionate about what is right, but wanting it and doing it are two different things. That's how deep or how powerful a hold sin has on me. And when I get to thinking that following the law is all I need in order to be good, to be right with God, sin perches over me like a vulture ready to pick my bones. Sooner or later, I'll realize that I can never be good enough, 
no matter how many laws I obey, I am a complete mess, says Paul, headed down a dead-end road. Who can save me from this body consumed by the law? When my only hope for release from obedience to the law is death, who's going to rescue me? Thanks be to God, that rescue comes through Jesus Christ. Through him, I know what a relationship with God looks like. Through him, I know the hope of freedom from the law. Now, apart from Jesus Christ himself, we hold no other biblical figure in a higher regard than, than Paul, and rightly so. If you extract Paul from the history of the early church, from the, the path that the good news took as it spread, and who knows how different the church might be today, or whether the church would even exist. Paul had that kind of power. But still, Paul was as messed up over why he did what he did as every one of us. In January, <clears throat> I read all seven wonderfully banned from school library volumes of the Harry Potter series. And I watched all eight movies. I did the same thing last year. And I've done it every year since I retired in 1915, 1950, yes, not quite that old, in 2015. And I have been reading all those books with some regularity since the first one came out in 1997. Now, I realize that there are some people who would rate that as pretty messed up. But with every reading, all 4,100 pages, I fall in love again. One more time with all the characters. Those wonderfully flawed, wonderfully human characters beyond the wands, beyond the incantations. And they are people just like you and me trying to get it right, often missing the mark, just like Paul, attempting to understand how or why they do the things they do. But one character in the Harry Potter series is seldom unprepared and is determined to do everything by the rules. Her response to, to everything is to consult one of her textbooks or to head off to, to Hogwarts Library because everything one needs to know about what to do in any situation can be found somewhere in a book. Hermione Granger is the Apostle Paul, suffering from an acute addiction to the law. One of the delightful transitions of this character is where she, she slowly learns to follow her heart, basing her decisions on relationships rather than on books. Now the Latin root of the word addiction means given over, given over, as in when a person is given over or awarded to another person in slavery. Want to know what you are addicted to? Think about what it is that, that claims most of your time, what it is that you can't imagine yourself living without. There you have your master. There you have the, the very thing that you are enslaved to. Our only hope is 
not to embrace the rules of Jesus, but to embrace Jesus himself, to live and to, to, to act and, and to think and to make decisions based on the stories we have of him, the stories that we love. Jesus said, for, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. Where does it say that in the law? Where does it say that, that he must be possessed if he doesn't enjoy sitting down and sharing a meal with others? The son of man came eating and drinking. They said, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Where does it say in the law that sitting down to a meal with a sinner makes you a sinner too? Thanks, God, for hiding the answers from the people who think they know everything. And revealing them to the babies who don't know anything. To the ones who only know relationships. Who respond only to relationships. Jesus didn't come to make life more complicated. It doesn't always feel like that because we aren't ready to turn loose of the law. The great complicator of life. We think or we... We feel that, that following him is, is forcing us to worship. It's forcing us to pray. Forcing us to give. Forcing us to, to choose between sports and Sunday school. Forcing us to interact with people we just soon not interact with. And adding more, more weight to our life than what we're ready to deal with. And all of that just so we can hold evil, hold sin at bay. But he said, come to me, all you who have had just about enough of all this, enough of trying to make it on your own, of thinking that there is a rule or a doctrine that can guide every decision, every action, of thinking that God is going to withhold love from us if we don't toe the line. Jesus said, I'm here to help you relax. To help you rest. Yokes are what a farmer uses to guide an animal. He says, get next to me. Work with me. Take my yoke upon you and, and let me guide you. Learn from me. It's not the law you'll be learning. I am gentle and humble in heart. That's what you'll be learning. Humility. Gentleness? No law can legislate gentleness or humility. No law can protect us from evil. No law can change us inside. We change as a result of a prolonged relationship. Evil is real. Evil is there. Evil is here. The law has tried to, to fix it, to control it, but the law has failed. Paul says to us, here's the one guarantee. Here's the one thing that never fails. Here's the one thing that will always be predictable, just like the laws of nature. When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand, convincing me that nothing I do will ever be good enough. So when evil lies close at hand, 
the only thing we can do is to make sure that God lies even closer. The only thing we can do is to yoke ourselves to Jesus, gentle, humble Jesus, and learn to be like him. When life gets difficult and demanding, too heavy for us to bear, hear him saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Try it with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Let's do it again. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.